Welcome to Feminist Popcorn, the celebration and growing archive of the greatest movies about women. I'm Samantha Rare, here with my co-host Elizabeth Frankel, and may the odds be ever in your favor because we are here to talk, remember who the real enemy is, The Hunger Games, Catching Fire, and Mockingjay Parts 1 and 2. Here we are. Oh my god, I'm so excited. This is gonna be a wild, crazy episode. I just wanna say, every movie we watch, every time we record an episode, I take notes while I'm watching the movies, like while I'm doing my like very like careful rewatch. Uh-huh. I took more notes watching The Hunger Games than I have for any other movie we've discussed on this podcast. I think we really bit off more than we can chew. <laughs> Because with most giant franchises like this, you could have like your own podcast devoted to just that one series. There are Harry Potter podcasts, there are Lord of the Rings podcasts, and here we are as schmucks putting four (laughs) movies and three books into one episode. It's great. That's just the hardcore attitude we have here on (laughs) Feminist Popcorn. I'm also like sick with the flu right now. Oh no. If you can hear in my voice. But I love you guys too much. And you love Katniss Everdeen. Ugh. She's a really complicated hero. I think these movies are really special. I think these stories are really special. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. Suzanne Collins is my hero. These books had such a huge influence on me. And I'm thrilled to be talking about the movies. Absolutely. So because this is a huge series, we're gonna format this episode a little differently than usual. I'm just gonna introduce all of the movies right now, and then we'll have a huge conversation about all of them as a whole, as a single piece of entertainment. Fantastic. And I was gonna say, like, I hope you all had fun with your (laughs) Hunger Games marathons, but then I realized, like, you probably didn't have fun. These movies are fucking miserable. (laughs) Like, I feel like people joke all the time about, like, Harry Potter fans just want to go to Hogwarts. Uh Like, Game of Thrones fans even, like, want to go to Westeros. Sure. You want to go to New Zealand for Lord of the Rings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think Hunger Games fans are, like, pretty satisfied never visiting Pan Am. Well, because we're in Pan Am. That's the whole point, right? Like, that's what we'll get into is that... I do not think of these as, like, dystopian sci-fi. I think these are very much just, like, contemporary political books (laughs) and movies. These these don't feel fantastical to me at all. Yeah, sure. So we'll we'll get into that. Great. (laughs) So the Hunger Games series is based on the book series by Suzanne Collins, and it stars Jennifer Lawrence as Katniss Everdeen. The Hunger Games, released in 2012, was directed by Gary Ross, with a screenplay by Suzanne Collins, Gary Ross, and Billy Ray. Catching Fire, released in 2013, was directed by Francis Lawrence with a screenplay by Simon Beaufoy and Michael Arndt. And Mockingjay Parts 1 and 2, released consecutively in 2014 and 2015, were directed by Francis Lawrence with screenplays by Danny Strong and Peter Craig. The movie trivia nerd in me is just overwhelmed by all the names you just said. Right. Let's break it down. Gary Ross. He wrote big, first of all. He wrote and directed Dave. He wrote and directed Pleasantville. This man is iconic. (laughs) Who else we got? Francis Lawrence directed Who Run the World Girls, the Beyonce music video. He's like a legendary music video director. He directed music videos for Jennifer Lopez and Destiny's Child and the Backstreet Boys and Pink. (laughs) I love Pink. She's the reason I get up in the morning. Yeah. He directed 
Lady Gaga, Bad Romance. Oh my god. Okay, so in addition to Francis Lawrence, in terms of writers, we got Simon Beaufoy. He wrote The Full Monty. He wrote Slumdog Millionaire. He wrote 127 <gasps> Hours. This man is a genius. <sighs> we got Michael Arndt, who wrote Little Miss Sunshine. Oh my god. Wow. So exciting. And we got Danny Strong of Buffy the Vampire Slayer fame. Oh my god. And Empire and Game Change. He's amazing. He played Jonathan on Buffy the Vampire Slayer <laughs> and Doyle in Gilmore Girls. And then he just like became this like titan of Yeah, Hollywood. went on went on to become the king of Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> and like created Empire. He's amazing. Also, Peter Craig is Sally Field's son. Sally Field, the greatest gift of the world. <laughs> an and then angel. she gave us Peter Craig. So this is just great. <laughs> So already just these names, we know that this incredible story is going to be in really good hands. It's very weird because I feel like all of the movies we just listed mm -hmm. are these like very soft, heartfelt mm. kind of stories. Sure. I mean, Who Run the World Girls has some attitude. Very true. <laughs> yeah. It's just interesting to see how those genres translate into this series. Totally. I remember when I was in college and it was announced that Gary Ross was going to write and direct the first Hunger Games because I was already obsessed with the books. I remember being very confused, hmm. being like, this is such a gentle filmmaker, the way that you and I had talked about Peter Hedges, that these are like masters of humanity and emotional sure. depth. And here he is doing an action movie. So I was very excited to see what was going to happen. I think that shines through, though, because Definitely. I really do think that Katniss Everdeen is such a complex character. And so much of this movie has to do with trauma and PTSD and sort of the inability to be a hero the reluctancy of being a hero. Mm. And I think all of that is handled really well in these movies. Yeah. She is so far to me from the typical action hero. But obviously the heart of these films is the source material mm. from Suzanne Collins. Yeah. These books meant so much to me. I think I read each of them like over a weekend as soon as they came out. I think it was actually John Green and Hank Green, the vlog brothers on YouTube. Mm. I think they recommended the first book very, very early and picked it up devoured it, waited for the next one, devoured it, waited for the next one, devoured it. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just have a real place in my heart for these books. I heard an anecdote that Suzanne Collins was flipping through the channels on her television and she was flipping back and forth between like, a reality competition show like Survivor or something right. and war coverage on the news and going back and forth between those two images was like making her sick and she was feeling really grossed out by those two types of content in dialogue with each other and realizing that these are the kinds of entertainment that America is interested in. This is what we watch for entertainment. Right. And so it was that marriage of those two types of entertainment that birthed The Hunger Games. I think it's pretty obvious that this is an American narrative. This series evokes something really powerful about the timelessness of violence and using violence as entertainment. Yeah. You know, Pan Am, it takes place in the future, but clearly it's about America today. But the images in it, using violence as entertainment, is thousands of years old. Whenever I think of violence as entertainment, I immediately think of gladiator battles in ancient Greece. And, you know, I don't watch Game of Thrones, but many, many, many people do. And I sort of think of the violence that's in Game of Thrones being very similar to the way people would watch gladiator battles. So I sort of don't think we are more depraved now or will be more depraved in the future than we had ever been. We've always been depraved like this. We've always enjoyed watching people eat each other, essentially, <laughs> you know, whether it's gladiator battles, Game of Thrones, or the Hunger Games. Yeah, I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. Mm. I've been watching it for years. And I think I do 
do get something like that out of it. I enjoy the violence. It's sort of thrilling. And I think because it feels so much in this fantasy realm, it feels safe. Like I know it's actors. I know it's all pretend. I know it's just like this big team of people like putting all their energy into telling a really exciting and graphic story. I think you're right that the core of it is that human beings like violence. My one argument though is I love watching Game of Thrones. I hate watching the news coverage of war. I don't want to see that. Because it's real. Because it's real. Mm. Because there is a distinction for me. That's interesting. I think for a lot of people, especially in Pan Am, there isn't a distinction. They are genuinely entertained by the Hunger Games, fully knowing that it's real. And these yeah. are real kids getting killed. And I think a huge part of that is the hierarchy system in Pan Am. The capital citizens are basically the only citizens of Pan Am. Everyone in the districts are slave laborers. Mm. So they have that distinction of humanity that these people are the real people and these people are disposable. It's interesting though that you and I are discussing the nuance of absorbing violence. Like in what context can people enjoy watching violence? Right. Because it's pretty clear that the characters in The Hunger Games are are not enjoying this violence. The characters who are in the arena, they're not enjoying a moment of this. Although maybe that's not true. Maybe the careers do. I was paying special attention to the careers because I think that concept is so interesting. I remember watching the first movie and the first time you get into the arena, Katniss is standing there looking around and the clock is ticking down. And I was sitting in the theater thinking, they're not actually going to start killing each other, are they? <laughs> Like, had you not read the books? I had read the books, but I was just like, I was transported watching the movie. Mm. I thought the movie was great. That's awesome. I just couldn't believe that these kids were actually like drinking the Kool-Aid and were going to like start killing each other. I, yeah. I figured that it would be so easy to just get into the arena and just like not kill anyone. Yeah, just stand there and be like, we don't like this. The system that they've created is so clever that the people at the top of the pyramid are so blinded by their privilege. The kids in one and two that have more food, better treatment, have grown up in a safer environment. Have trained to have a fighting chance in the arena. Right. That privilege is what causes those kids to participate in the system. All the Hunger Games needs is one kid to start killing everyone else. Yeah, to take it seriously. Right. And then other kids have to start defending themselves. That's the natural snowball of effects. Yeah. And then they have this even sicker system where if you get someone like Katniss, whose first instinct is to run far away from everyone else, yeah. go to the outskirts of the arena and just hang out there, they've created this technologically advanced arena that will force her closer to the other competitors and will torture her until she just gives in and starts fighting. Yeah. Just to get out of this torture chamber of the arena. It's really brilliant. Yeah, I mean, Katniss is a great fighter and that's why it's so frustrating that these really smart TV producers, you know, these people who are actually curating the Hunger Games, who are in their giant control room, they want to make a good TV show. They're really smart entertainers. And as soon as kids aren't killing each other, they take such a cheap and easy way to create drama and entertainment again. They add in the fog in Catching Fire. They add in the mutts. Like, if you're going to be killed, be killed by your fellow man, because otherwise the arena is just going to kill you anyway. Like, that's just so cheap. Right. It just seemed like such a lazy way for the capital to make the games interesting. Like, oh, no one's killing each other right now. Well, we gotta 
spice it up. We gotta add some drama. Let's just have the whole environment kill these kids. It just seems so stupid. I feel like the most annoying example of that is the rain of blood. Like, <laughs> that doesn't even pose a threat. That's just mean. <laughs> I really appreciated how quickly Katniss gets like really wounded in the games and there are like serious consequences to her getting wounded. This isn't like the typical kind of hero action movie where the hero just like runs through burning buildings like unscathed Mm. and then like breaks their hand and still is able to punch someone, (laughs) right? Like she gets a wound in her leg and she has to wait for medicine to fall from the sky before she continues her journey. She gets stung by wasps and she has to sleep for two whole days. Yeah. The only reason she's able to live through sleeping while she recovers is because Rue is there looking after her. Yeah. I really appreciated that. There are serious consequences to the danger in the arena. And because of that, you actually fear for her life. Totally. And the same thing with PETA. I mean, we'll talk about PETA being a total damsel, but right. his injury completely debilitates the two of them. Yeah. Like she can't leave him alone and he can't leave the cave so they're both kind of paralyzed right because he gets injured which the is, whole which is awesome. final act is based around the fact that she needs medicine for him yeah and as far as i'm concerned because of course this movie you empathize with all these characters very much i'm thinking if i was going into the hunger games i would not last more than five minutes like the fact that half of the tributes are killed truly within the first 10 minutes i was like that would have been me that would have mm-hmm. been probably most people if you can survive the first 10 minutes you're 50% there. That's a lot of pressure when the game immediately starts. Like, Hamish was right to tell her to leave the cornucopia and not stick around for that bloodbath. That death sequence is so fast and intense, you barely see what's really happening. You just know that a lot of people are dying. I just love that Hamish is probably trying, like, as a mentor for the first time because he's like, oh shit, maybe one of my kids actually has a fighting chance. He probably never bothered with sponsors. He never bothered caring about these kids because they usually probably died in those first 10 minutes of every year and not only do both of his kids survive one is actually becoming like kind of a favorite amongst the capital which has never happened to one of his kids before she's like oh now I'm like actually gonna do my job I'm gonna like try to help this girl I relate to Rue I feel like I would have a similar strategy as her hiding biding your time hiding trying to avoid all conflict using my littleness and girlness to my advantage Mm. that people don't see me as a physical threat so they ignore me I was so fascinated by the careers digging up the minefields around the cornucopia and like repositioning them for their own advantage I was thinking how the fuck did they do that do you know how they did that they were probably trained for it huh like they have advantages based on their education and their privilege to help them in the arena yeah I had never been so aware of Clove before Mm. who is such an amazing character I think it's Isabel Fern is such an amazing actor. I was sort of just terrified of her in the books. And I think there's real nuance and texture to her in the movie that how much she enjoys this was very striking. She enjoys killing people because it doesn't occur to her that she's a victim. Right. And so because of that, I thought she was a more interesting character because she likes being a part of the system because she doesn't know that she has a choice. Because she's privileged. Yeah. I was really drawn to Cato. Cato is... Has a great speech that I totally forgot about. Right. Totally forgot. 
The first thing I noticed about Cato was he reminded me of, like, a football jock. Mm -hmm. Just the way he talked, the way he held himself. He reminded me of, like, any douchey guy from my high school (laughs) who was, like, just interested in football because he wanted to, like, beat other guys up. Mm. Right? And he doesn't know any better because, you know, this is the system he was, like, raised into. And he has that great speech at the end where he finally realizes that he's just as much a pawn in this system as anyone else. Yeah. Because he's probably traumatized from killing for the past few days. Absolutely. I think no one really anticipated how real the killing was going to right, be. Right, exactly. Until it happened. I had a thought in the first half of the movie as they were preparing for this. I kept yelling out loud to the screen. I said, this is insane does no one realize how insane this is and during the reaping no one is fighting back and i'm like god the system is so brilliantly put in place that nobody thinks that they have the opportunity to resist hey mitch clearly hates the system from the moment you see him he hates that he has to get to know these kids and train them just so they'll die every single one of the tributes he's ever worked with have all died so he doesn't even want to get close to katniss and pita because he knows that he's never going to see them again you can feel that disdain and disgust for pan m the first moment that woody harrelson walks on screen and yet it does not occur to him that he can do anything about it right and that's why katniss is so interesting because katniss was the first spark of oh shit, can we fight back? Can we actually resist against this? I feel like most people in this world, really it didn't occur to them that they could fight back. Sure. And I think that's very potent to real life as well. That's why revolutions are so exciting because everyone is now validated to think, oh, everything I've hated about the system for so long is actually how everyone else feels and we can all band together to change it. That's what Me Too was. A lot of women's narratives in Me Too were simply just, I didn't know that that was harassment or I didn't know that I could say anything. I wasn't given permission to be upset about that. Yeah. Katniss has this incredible line in Mockingjay. To me, it's the moment when she becomes the Mockingjay. Mm. She like becomes this symbol that she's been trying to be this whole time. She has a gun to her head Mm. and she says, I'm done being a piece in this game. Who always wins? Snow. I'm his slave because I killed Kato. Kato killed Thresh. Thresh killed Clove. All of these kids are just pawns in this game. And I think that's really the thing that pushes the revolution into motion. Yeah. It's all of these people realizing that we outnumber the powerful. We may be pawns in this game, but there's more of us than there are of them. And what's so devastating about what you're saying is when they are charging towards the capital and people are getting killed left and right. Finnick is killed. This person's killed. I remember thinking, God, it's really fucking convenient to be in a war when you believe in it. All of these people are giving up their lives to get Katniss to the capital because that's how much they believe in this revolution. Right. And I thought, for the love of God, how can you go to war if you don't believe in it? Then it's exactly what you're describing, that you become a pawn in someone else's game. You are a slave to kill and be killed on someone else's behalf. So it's really inconvenient when you don't believe in the war that you're fighting And that's why Vietnam was such a big deal, why Iraq was such a big deal, because to sacrifice these young kids for a war that they don't believe in is devastating. I was very, very moved that as much as this series explores violence in an entertaining way, it's made very clear that the ultimate trauma that these 
young kids could experience is participating in the Hunger Games. And yet in the third chapter, in Mockingjay, they completely undermine that and they say, no, the most traumatic thing that could possibly happen to anyone is going to war. And yet we go to war all the time in real life. Yeah. Like that was very powerful to me that we're watching this fantastical scenario of violence, the Hunger Games. And yet that was actually less traumatizing than the very realistic scenario of going to war. I feel like there's kind of a meta element of these movies where I think the first two are a lot more fun to watch. They're exciting. I think Catching Fire especially, I get a little drawn into like how they're going to solve the puzzle of the arena. Mm -hmm. And then I think that the second half of the series, Mockingjay, really feels like a proper war movie. Yeah, I agree with that distinction, but I'm not really enjoying the first two (laughs) chapters either. I'm pretty unhappy the whole time. I remember sitting in the movie theater with you watching Catching Fire, and we had a great old time. (laughs) That's That's true. I forgot we saw that together. I knew we saw the last one together, but I guess we saw Catching Fire. I think we saw saw all of them together. That was like the most fun that I've had in a movie theater, like ever, (laughs) watching Catching Fire. Why, were we like laughing? Yeah, we were like having a ball. Wow. And then we were sobbing. That's really funny. Catching Fire is by far my favorite book and it's by far my favorite movie Mm. because I'm obsessed with Joanna Mason. I'm obsessed with Finnick. I'm just obsessed with this elevation of drama that you think the worst thing that could happen to Katniss is the first Hunger Games and then they throw her back into the arena and then they send her to war. Like they keep pushing this girl's limits. And the quarter quell was the first indication that the capital was going to do that to her. You know, when they say, all the victors are going to return to the arena. I was like, oh shit, this book doesn't give a fuck about Katniss. Even though they already had made that clear, but they really just like were openly torturing this girl. Catching Fire is funny to me because the quarter quell is so clearly a stupid idea on Snow's part. And it's sort of oh. it's sort of brilliant that it was really Plutarch's plan. He's the right. spy on the inside. He's sort of been whispering in Snow's ear to do something drastic like this. Wait, go back to that. Why do you think it's such an obviously stupid idea? That's really interesting. Because it's one thing to take kids that the capital and the districts have never met before and throw them into the arena. To take people that they've loved their entire lives mm, some of these yeah to take these valuable people of panem like Beatty, who is like responsible for inventing like important technology in yeah. panem finnick is like an a-list celebrity he's like brad pitt yeah like you could sense how it's different mm. the air is different when suddenly these capital citizens basically because the victors like become capital citizens right they, they start hobnobbing with the rich and powerful after they've left the arena so It's like watching your friends go into the arena. Mm. It changes the game. And that's why Snow's myopic bullshit of just wanting to hurt Katniss blows up in his face. Because you can tell he only went along with that idea for the quarter quell because he wanted to kill Katniss in a way that was public, in the way that would be humiliating to her. That was all he could focus on, was just killing Katniss. And the casualty of that is everything you're talking about, that he actually makes a fool of himself because no one's happy with this idea. Right. It's like at a certain point that you have to walk a very fine line with totalitarianism. (laughs) You've got to be just nice enough. Mm. Once you get too mean, you give the game away. Snow sort of goes against his own philosophy. In the first movie, he's this amazing line. He says, why do you think we have a winner? If we just wanted to intimidate, why not round up 24 and execute them all at once? It would be a lot faster. The answer is hope. The only thing stronger than fear is hope. 
as soon as he sends the victors back into the arena, mm-hmm. he takes away the hope. Mm. There's no hope after that because the hope is that one victor will remain, one victor will have their happily ever after. Right. Now that hope is gone. Right. Now he's like quashing true love. The capital is obsessed with this love story between Katniss and Peeta, and he is squashing that. Yeah. He's like a child who's throwing a tantrum. Right. And is willing to destroy their bedroom (laughs) having a tantrum. Yeah. I think Effie is a really cool character. She's sort of the personification of the citizens of the capital. In the first film, she's very one note. She comes into District 12. She's the first thing we see of the capital. Mm -hmm. She's wearing this bright pink outfit. She looks ridiculous. Mm -hmm. She's got this very affected British accent. We don't see her change until Catching Fire, when Katniss and Peeta, these kids that she's grown to love, are sent back into the arena to their probable deaths. Mm -hmm. That's when we see the crack in Effie's veneer. And she's finally starting to learn that, oh, these are people. These are my friends. And I think it's very easy to see that her journey is being replicated for all the citizens of Penham. Mm-hmm. Totally. Related to what you said about her costumes, I find it so satisfying that there is such a distinction in aesthetic between the Capitol and everybody else. Oh, yeah. You start the movie sort of thinking you're in the Great Depression, <laughs> right? Yeah. The camera is very shaky, which I know the film got a bit of criticism for. I think it's fabulous. I love the Yeah, I think cam. it's great. They're all in these very muted colors. It truly looks like it's the 30s. Yeah. You know, it looks like the Bowl, basically. <laughs> and then this very futuristic person from Mars walks in. And or you're like, oh. from RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> and you're like, what year is it? And that's really exciting. When the aesthetic confuses you to not know what year it is, that's really cool. Yeah. And so then in later scenes, when you go to the Capitol, you really come to terms with how, what year it is, which only further emphasizes how depressed and behind the times and ill-resourced District 12 was. Right. But I actually think the movies are structured brilliantly Mm. we actually don't get into the arena in the hunger games and catching fire until after an hour into the movie all of that time is just build up and world building these movies have incredible world building and i think it really earns the violence and the drama and the high stakes of the actual games because we know so much about penem already absolutely it sort of reminds me of how elections work in america that our entire culture is framed around this one day. It's truly just one day. The Hunger Games are just a couple of days. Like, that's it. Out of 365 days in a year, the entire civilization of this country is based on something that happens fairly quickly. Right. And then is over. It's the television event of the year. Yeah, just like elections are for us. Yeah. Like, as soon as one election is over, everyone starts thinking about the next one. Even if it's two years away, four years away. I find it really interesting that Snow describes the games as a pageant. Mm -hmm. And I think pageantry in general is a huge theme of Panem, of this society. It's sort of a meta theme of the films. Um, (laughs) Whether it intended to be or not. Right, sure. (laughs) It's sort of crazy that like, because it's a film representation of the Hunger Games, which are so horrific, it still has to be entertaining. And I do enjoy watching it. (laughs) 
So there's like, yeah, there's like a weird element in it. Yeah. You're like, I am participating in what I'm also criticizing. I'm sort of drinking the medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Or the Kool-Aid. Sure. And I think it really pokes fun at that very American television culture. It's sort of crazy. Like when I learned that Cressida came from the Capitol, that Mm -hmm. she was a filmmaker in the Capitol, Mm -hmm. it made me realize that citizens of the Capitol still have jobs. It's like the capital itself is its own like system of capitalism mm-hmm. that feeds off the slave labor of the districts mm. and the main businesses of the capital happen to be like filmmaking and entertainment and <laughs> fashion yeah which is a really funny statement for a big Hollywood movie to be making. Yeah. That irony was certainly not lost on me, and I gotta say it sort of soured my experience of watching these movies. Right. It's sort of unclear how aware they are of that irony. It seems pretty unaware, frankly. I I think there were a lot of opportunities that could have been a little more self-deprecating and weren't. But related to Cressida... I'm just so taken with Natalie Dormer. I think she's such a great actor that she made so much with a fairly small part. I kept thinking, yeah, she's a filmmaker. Like, is she a stand-in for, like, Lenny Riefenstahl, who then turned against the machine that she was working for and was like, actually, I'm a servant of evil. Like, I sort of wanted Cressida to have her own, like, (laughs) spinoff. Right. Of being this, like, young up-and-coming artist in the Capitol. Be like, oh, fuck, look what I'm participating in. (laughs) And, yeah, the fact that she is is first and foremost an entertainer. When Snow asks Katniss, would you like to be in a real war? I was very confused because I was like, what part of the Hunger Games is not a real war? And it's because to him, he does see it as entertainment. And that made me think, wow, I'd like to see him be a tribute. I'd like to see him go in and try to defend himself against the atrocities that he's making these kids go through. There's this argument that a lot of people in America have that you sort of don't have the right to be president if you haven't served in a war. And I sort of wasn't raised in the culture that believed that. But if anything, this movie really made me understand that, that you cannot send kids off to war Mm. if you don't deeply and intimately know the stakes of that because because you yourself participated and understood it. And right now with Trump, there could not be anyone who has less empathy for what people go through in those situations. I mean, I think it's really interesting you bring up Trump. I sort of try not to bring that subject up too often on this podcast. God, yeah, like I'm sorry. Triggering. And I want this to be like a fun and like safe and comforting environment. Absolutely. But I know I don't want to talk about Trump either. Right. But, but like when the themes of <laughs> These films are, like, so obviously correlated to what's going on. I just, like, you can't ignore it. I mean, it's not even, it's not even your fault that you're, like, fishing for it or whatever. We literally have a reality TV show star (laughs) as our president. You know what I mean? Like, that's right out of The Hunger Games. You can't make that shit up. He's literally a reality star. Yeah. He treats the American public as an audience for his 24-hour TV show, which is called Trump Plays President. Like, he thinks of us as his TV audience. I just... Just kept a list of lines that just like <laughs> reminded me of things that have like come out of his mouth. Yeah. When Snow is talking about the era of peace in Panem because of the Hunger Games, mm-hmm. he describes it as a peace built upon cooperation and a respect for law and order. <laughs> and then another time he says, I don't want to call them rebels, I'll call them radicals. Or criminals, yeah. And I was like, where have I heard that? When PETA was on TV 
me and he was like brainwashed mm. and he was explaining to the people of Penem that do we really want a civil war? Killing isn't the answer. Trying to convince people not to not to rebel against their oppressors. I feel like that's the narrative that I hear all the time of like people on Twitter saying like why are people rioting and like violence isn't the answer when like what is the answer? Right? In the, like point to any era of revolution in history that was achieved by being nice. <laughs> Absolutely. I had a very weird conversation recently that I'm still sort of getting over, but I had a big fight with a guy recently, a friend of mine, and I don't think he would mind if I talked about this, but I was just getting so mad. It was a political conversation. I don't quite remember what we were talking about. And I was yelling at him in a way that I don't really yell at people, or if I do, it's with people that I'm very intimate with, that we have sort of a, a rhythm, a muscle memory of how to yell at each other. This guy and I did not know how to yell at each other. And when it was over, I remember feeling so down. I was so blue about this. I like, couldn't believe I got so rageful and, and he got rageful and he was so depressed at the end of the conversation because I think he ultimately knew he was wrong. And we parted ways and I was sitting on my couch and I thought there's no other way I could have gotten him to understand if I had been nice about it. He would have just accepted that we, you know, agree to disagree and we the conversation would have moved on. There was no way for him to have understood what I was saying if I didn't get that rageful. And it was a shame because now I'm in a bad mood. My night is sort of ruined. Mm. And I sort of didn't have any other choice. And I ultimately didn't regret it. It was just a shame. I think that that's something that Katniss learns. Yeah. The hard way. Yeah. At the end of Catching Fire, when she hears that District 12 has been demolished, 90% of the citizens have been killed. And there's the amazing shot of her face like transforming from fear to determination. Yeah. It's the final image of the movie. I think in that moment, she decides that she's going to become a revolutionary and that the sacrifices of being a revolutionary are outweighed by the change that needs to happen. Yeah, totally. I think Snow is a great villain from the very beginning. He's played wonderfully by Donald Sutherland. But then we get Coin. Love Coin. Most interesting character, I think. That's not true. They're all interesting, but she's really interesting. I'm obsessed with President Coyne, played gorgeously by Julianne Moore. I think we can just say we're obsessed with Julianne Moore. Coyne, to me, is like the other feminist piece of this puzzle for this series to me. It's like what you said in Pan's Labyrinth, that if there was just one right. female character, it would it would be maybe a little questionable, but to complement Katniss with Coyne? Coyne's like the second lead of the last two yeah. movies. Yeah, definitely. I love her as the like good twin to... To President Snow as the other side of the coin of mm. President Snow, you know, that they're they're secretly the same person. Yeah. They just seem on the surface like they're opposites. Like in Okja. Yeah. The twins in Okja. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that even her aesthetic is similar to Snow's. Mm-hmm. They both have the white gray hair. Yeah. I think Suzanne Collins is saying something very powerful about human nature when it comes to leadership. That to be a leader, you have to be desperately hungry for power. Yeah. You have to get high off power. Yeah. And those are the people who can lead you out of a system or into a system. Those are the voices that tend to rise to the top and take control of a situation. If anything, it was a bit sort of on the nose how similar Coin and Snow 
nowhere because Coin is the one who drops the bomb that kills all the children yeah. in the capital, manipulating the public to think that it was Snow. She's just as manipulative and cunning as Snow is. And then to follow up with that manipulation by saying, let's have another Hunger Games. Oh so God. clearly she has learned nothing. And under her rule, the country will not grow. I'm so thrilled in the moment when Katniss turns her arrow on Coin in the final scene. And she becomes the Mockingjay in that moment. She actually learns that she has an ability to fight power. Totally. I wasn't like thrilled just because at that point I was so exhausted by death. I was so exhausted sure. by killing that I was like, fuck, God, another one. Like, fine. Like, I get it. She she deserves to die. But I was, I sort of wasn't feeling empowered or vindicated or I wasn't sort of embracing any of these deaths anymore because I had just watched like nine hours of right. people killing each other. And I just wanted everyone to go home. <laughs> I like that Commander Paler assumes power after that. Yeah. Patina Miller. Fabulous. This was a devastating thing I realized when watching that scene of the children from the Capitol getting bombed. This narrative implies that the mass death of children would be enough to end a war, right? It's like the atomic mm. bomb. It's like, we can't go any further. This was the last straw. We can't possibly have any more violence after our children have been sacrificed. Well, Sandy Hook was years ago, and that hasn't made any significant shifts in the way we talk about gun control and gun violence in this country. So to see that's how this movie ended was very painful because so many of these parallels have been very profound and insightful. And this one, I wish we were in a narrative more similar to The Hunger Games where some Something like Sandy Hook would have been our last straw, and it hasn't been. I think, though, that, like, the reason the war ends because of the children dying at the end is because those are the capital's children. Yeah. Children have been sent to the Hunger Games for generations. From the districts, yeah. Right. It was just that those weren't our children. Yeah. Like, we see children dying in war zones on the news all the time. Yeah. I think that the film actually got at something true to life, that, like, it doesn't hit close to home until it's your own children. Yeah. Snow says that there were peacekeepers guarding the Capitol whose children were actually in that crowd mm. that were bombed. Yeah. And that was the only thing that made them put down their guns. So if anything, you think it's more a commentary on narcissism than generosity of spirit towards children. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nobody ever gave a shit about children in this story. Yeah. Or in a real life, apparently. Yeah. I was really struck in Catching Fire when PETA announces that Katniss is pregnant and <laughs> the crowd goes wild and they're like, stop the games, don't let it happen. Yeah. And then they're like, the lights go out on the stage while oh, they're all hold holding hands. hands. Yeah. Beautiful moment. So beautiful. But oh my God, I was thinking like this crowd of people cares so much as soon as he says that there's like a fetus involved. <laughs> and yet they've been sending children to their deaths. Mm. For generations. These children. These children on stage. Right. That you're now excited to see them go back into the arena. Right. First of all, I thought that was a very American argument that the film made in that moment. Sure. A corner of America. I wouldn't say sure. it's ubiquitously America. <laughs> but it also got me thinking, why children? Like, wouldn't it be more fun? Wouldn't it make better television to put adults into the arena? No, because this illusion of entertainment is very 
thin. Everyone knows that Snow is just torturing them. Snow knows it. The districts know it. This disguise of entertainment really only goes so far as the ignorant citizens of the capital. Most people know that Snow is doing this as retaliation for the rebellion that happened 75 years ago. Like, the districts aren't watching it to be entertained. They know they're being punished. Right. There's a moment when President Snow is giving a speech to the districts, sort of punishing them for letting them know that they've acted up. And it's truly like a performance. The peacekeepers who are live, who are standing on a stage in each respective district, they're like, okay, when President Snow says this line, that's my cue to execute these rebels. Mm. There's basically a stage manager to this. Like, it's all coordinated with Snow's speech, with the peacekeepers who are actually there physically in the districts. Like, it's all one giant theater performance. I just realized, though, that there's so many levels to that because that scene is probably orchestrated by Plutarch, who Mm. is intentionally trying to make Snow look bad. And trying to rile up the districts. Right. That's weird. And still doesn't give a shit about the people being executed. Right. Yeah. Like, those are pawns in Plutarch's game. Yeah. Yeah, Plutarch is really in charge of Pena. Plutarch in the series really reminded me of Snape. Oh. In that he's this agent of good, undercover on the bad side but how much good is he actually doing if he's participating he has to participate in this system in order to get on snow's good side so that's interesting i have such mixed feelings about snape so that opens up a whole can of worms i have mixed feelings about plutarch yeah sure it was also just a bit sentimental to see philip seymour hoffman in one of his last roles yeah plutarch gets away scot-free yeah and he becomes advisor to the new president yeah that's a really interesting detail and i know they moved around some scenes after philip seymour hoffman passed away so i'm not exactly sure what the original intention would have been for plutarch's character at the end of the films but it did make me a little uncomfortable that yeah he lives on as this master manipulator yeah of like everything from the capitals to the revolution to everything yeah it reminded me of these like famous advisors through history like dick cheney yeah who are like the masterminds behind the curtain i just love how we have this personification of the television culture in caesar flickerman played by stanley tucci yeah i think he's absolutely brilliant i love stanley tucci and he commits in this movie (laughs) his blue hair his laugh it is so funny his bleached teeth yeah and then to see how easily he shifts from covering the games in the first two movies to covering the war yeah in mockingjay that felt so realistic to me the way that you sometimes see tv anchors Mm -hmm. shifting from hard-hitting news to interviewing celebrities i think a lot of that ties into this profound theme that we are dealing with right now in america with fake news this idea of whatever fake news is i was thinking when caesar flickerman is interviewing Peta in the last two movies what do you expect to believe if you are a citizen of the capital and the only access to the information you have is through Caesar Flickerman in these interviews. How could you possibly be expected to know the truth about District 13 and Katniss and how everyone's being brainwashed and tortured? How would you know that if the only information you have is Caesar Flickerman? Right. It's a huge implication about Americans falling victim to their own media. I think liberals are guilty of this too. I don't think it's just Fox News. It's a lot of media outlets on both sides of the political spectrum that bias the situation to make the narrative sound like how you want it to sound like. It actually goes back to 
our conversation with Mean Girls that Regina George takes a pretty straightforward narrative and embellishes it to fit her own needs. Hmm. I think Caesar Flickerman is doing that. I think Fox News is the fucking devil when it comes to that kind of thing. And I think a lot of liberal outlets do it too. Well, I was really taken by how the same themes of television culture and beauty and coolness Mm -hmm. were still so relevant in the rebellion as they were to President Snow. Absolutely. One of my favorite lines is when Plutarch says, you're going to be the best dressed rebel in history. Just that ridiculous irony. Katniss arrives in District 13 and the first thing she's told is that she's going to be the star of propaganda videos. They don't even disguise the name. They call it propaganda. Yeah, they say propos. Yeah. Has a cute little nickname. (laughs) They are completely aware of the purpose of biased, fake television marketing. Even if it's for the sake of good. Right. Even if it's for something they believe in, they have no qualms about embellishing it to seem dramatic and attractive. That scene of Katniss on the, like, cheesy CGI set and Plutarch is playing the film director. It's so ridiculous and funny. (laughs) And she's such a bad actress. Like, why would you expect her to be able to do that? The playwright in me was saying, this isn't working because the line isn't good. It's not that your actor isn't a good performer. (laughs) It's that this this line is not well written. (laughs) That's funny. And also the propos are like movie trailers. Like they're tasteless and really effective. You like want to go see that movie, right? Right. And Katniss's performance, if that's what you want to call it, when she's in District 8 and she turns to the camera, I was thinking that that is a beautiful exercise in acting where you take real pain and you channel it towards a performance. They were basically giving her an acting exercise when Cressida is saying, what are you seeing? What are you feeling? Turn to the camera. Say your line. I mean, that is exactly what happens in acting school. It breaks my heart to think of the hard work that photojournalists need to do Mm. who go into war zones and their main job is just cataloging the trauma. Yeah. It made me think of Okja Mm. and the way that Paul Dano sacrifices Okja in the factory in order to get a good video. Yeah. That the video itself became more important than the small sacrifice of one pig. Right. And I don't entirely think that that's wrong. I mean, we talked about this in that episode, but like, I'm so glad that that footage exists and that footage will make a difference more than one pig would. And I'm not sure Katniss is able to understand that. It's an interesting distinction that Katniss was fine martyring herself for her sister in the first movie, but she really got wrapped into being a martyr for the country, not entirely on her own. Like, she was sort of forced into that position. She may not have martyred herself for the sake of Pan Am. I think the role that she's forced into is this leadership position that she doesn't want. I think if this were a more traditional hero story with a man at the center, it would sort of end with him being elected the leader of the nation or something. Like, that would be the prize that he would win at the end, Mm. or the victory. Katniss wants no part of that. She never wanted any of this. Her victory at the end is to go back home and live in the woods peacefully and not be bothered by anyone. 
So to me, there are two main characters of this story. There's Katniss and there's the Mockingjay, and they are two separate identities. Katniss is the girl from District 12 that we care for, we empathize with. She's the girl with incredible trauma and PTSD and fear for her life, for her family. Just wants to hunt deer. District 12, like wants a simple life. Katniss has this line in Mockingjay Mm -hmm. when she says, I never asked for this. I just wanted to save my sister. Mm -hmm. That to me is like boiled down. That is the essence of Katniss. I never wanted to be the Mockingjay. I just wanted to protect my sister. The Mockingjay, on the other hand, is this symbol Mm -hmm. that is almost forced onto her and manipulated by so many people throughout the series. The Mockingjay is this bird that makes one sound and then that sound is copied by another Mockingjay and then a third and then a number of others until the whole forest is full of Mockingjays making the same sound. It's the ultimate metaphor for power in numbers. I repeat your pain back to you and then suddenly we both have power and we're both louder. So it's sort of ironic to call a single person the Mockingjay. Mm. She may have made the first call. Yeah. But but that's the point of Mockingjay is right. that it's power in numbers. She finds the pin in the hob mm-hmm. in the Hunger Games just by luck. Mm-hmm. She just happens upon it. She gives it to her sister. Her sister gives it back to her as a like, talisman to hold on to the memory of why she's fighting in these games mm-hmm. to come back home to her sister. Sina takes that symbol and he runs with it. Hmm. He gives her the the girl on fire. He gives her the identity of the Mockingjay. He gives her that dress that turns into a bird costume. Yeah. Like, that's his rebellion. <laughs> and I also think that Rue plays a huge part in it. Mm. Rue's death, first of all, is the first kind of martyr moment of the revolution. But before that, Rue and Katniss have this moment when they're talking about how Mockingjays pass a message from one to another to another. And Rue is actually the first one to suggest that they hum a little tune to communicate to each other that they're going to be okay. Mm. She sings it in a major key, and then Katniss turns it into a minor key, and that's (laughs) the tune that gets taken and turned into the the musical theme of the revolution. Mm. But that comes from Rue. And then when Rue dies and Katniss mourns her death in that very beautiful and evocative way, the next moment of rebellion is people in District 11. Mm. That rebellion comes from that district finally feeling permission to mourn their dead in the way that they've always wanted to. Yeah. It doesn't entirely come from Katniss. And I think as the movies get bigger and bigger and bigger, you realize how many people are involved in making this revolution happen. I love the scenes when you cut to the army of people invading the hydroelectric dam. Mm -hmm. And you just see like this front line of people being totally gunned down in order to get one or two people into the building to plant the bomb. And the same thing with the lumberjacks in the forest that all of these people have signed up knowing that they will probably die in this operation in order to get those few people up to the tops of the trees to carry out this mission. Mm. I really appreciated that about this movie that there are so many characters characters, so many warriors in this rebellion. It's not just Katniss. It's not just a chosen one. It's an army. She's a piece of this puzzle. And nothing you're talking about has anything to do with what Katniss wanted. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think her journey in Mockingjay is super interesting because it's almost like the identity of the Mockingjay gets into her head a little bit. She becomes a little drunk with it mm -hmm. and suddenly has the ego to think that she could take on Snow all on her own. She could assassinate him all on her own. Mm. She's going to go on this rogue mission into the capital. And the tragedy of it is she gets all the way there. She gets to the gates and then she gets knocked out by a bomb. She wakes up in a hospital bed and realizes that the rebels invaded the capital completely without her. This entire movie, all of her friends dying, basically was pointless. Mm. because the rebellion sort of existed on its own without her. It may have been inspired by her, but it became its own machine because there were so many people involved at that point. I think she just conflated what was needed from Katniss and what was needed from the Mockingjay. Mm -hmm. The rebellion already had the Mockingjay, and therefore what Katniss was offering herself of her own body, her own family, wasn't really needed. Mm -hmm. And that's very difficult to swallow, that her humanity was sort of beside the point. They really just needed her to stand there and look pretty and inspire a rebellion that would then go off without her. And that's why it's so tragic that she loses Prim. Right, because that was pretty much the only thing that Katniss, not the Mockingjay, but Katniss had. Right, was it was her, her entire purpose for fighting in the first place was for her sister, and she got too wrapped up in this identity as the Mockingjay to remember that the place that Katniss needed to be was back home in District 13 protecting her sister. I kept thinking through the first few movies, why Katniss? Mm -hmm. Like, why is it Katniss? It could easily be Peeta. Why is Katniss the girl on fire when Peeta was also on fire right next to her? Mm. Why, when they come into the arena holding hands, they're both on fire, is the crowd shouting, Katniss, Katniss, mm -hmm. Katniss? I think a lot of it does have to do with Katniss looking like this beautiful woman, wearing these beautiful dresses, being in this beautiful love story on television, like those elements mattered but at the core it's this innate anger and fire within her she has the passion that the rebellion needs that not even coin has absolutely and i think everything you're describing is completely wrapped up in the moment when she volunteers for her sister yeah which friggin' gets me every time. It gets me in the book. Every time. Gets me in the movie. It is so unperformative, you know? Yeah. This entire series, this entire narrative is about performativity. The performativity of war, the performativity of rebellion, whatever. There is nothing performative about her screaming out, I volunteer as tribute. She is not trying to get attention. She's not doing this to be brave. She's just terrified. And how raw that moment is, is why, ironically, everyone falls in love with her and gives her all this attention and right. makes her famous and she ultimately becomes the Mockingjay it was because of this very raw unrehearsed moment when everyone then wants her to be a rehearsed version of right. that rawness and I know a lot of people have varying opinions about Jennifer Lawrence but I think in that moment particularly she's incredible I really do I admire her as an actor I think she does a really great job in these movies particularly showing the fear in Katniss throughout the films I think that a lot of movies that feature hashtag strong female characters confuse what bravery actually is. Which is the overcoming of fear. Right. Yeah. To me, bravery without fear is just ego. Katniss is 
full of fear at every moment of these movies. She is just dumbstruck with fear. And I think that's amazing. I think it is too. I I will say though that I did write down, I think a couple of times that I, that I think Jennifer Lawrence in these movies is sort of the strong female character that I'm usually allergic to. Hmm. But that sort of ties into another thought I had about the movie. As much as I love these books, as much as I love these movies, I do think that there was sort of a missed opportunity with the casting of it. With Jennifer Lawrence, Liam Hemsworth, and Josh Hutcherson being the sort of three lead young kids. I sort of felt like there was this unintended irony that the film is criticizing elite affluent culture, but it also is elite affluent culture. You know, there was sort of no distinction between normal quote unquote people who deal with real problems and real lives juxtaposed against the theatricality of the capital and how everyone looks insane mm-hmm. and is sort of dripping in privilege. It, it just sort of felt a little problematic to me that the people they cast to play the other side of that were these like beautiful Hollywood people who in any other context would have been from the capital. Like Josh Hutcherson could have been cast to play a career. Liam Hemsworth is the most beautiful person I've ever seen in my life. Jennifer Lawrence kind of seems like the princess of Hollywood, which if the movie is making the parallel that Hollywood is the capital, just felt a little like painfully ironic in a way that I don't know was helpful to the movie. Could this movie have been made not by Hollywood? I think there were ways to do it that could have been more self-aware and maybe had a bit of sense of humor about this irony. Even a self-deprecating tone to it that we know that this is painfully ironic, that we are the ones telling this story. Or at least we're telling it in this very beautiful, primed Hollywood way. So I totally appreciate your point. I'm like mostly with you. I do think that, you know, when Jennifer Lawrence was cast... She was like just the indie movie girl from Winter's Bone. I totally agree with you about Liam Hemsworth. The way he looked was distracting to me. In terms of Katniss, just in my opinion, I think that it served the story because I think that she looked the part of the capital darling. She looked the part of the Mockingjay. Many people in this movie make a big deal about turning her into this beautiful symbol of like feminine power. They put her in this skin-tight Mockingjay suit, and they do up her makeup crazy, they do her hair, there's this big makeover scene where she's being, like, operated on, basically, and her legs are being waxed, her eyebrows are being plucked, her, like, skin is being buffed. Totally. I think all of those moments and shots that you're describing, I was hungry for that to be on full steam ahead. I wanted way more shots of the -the behind-the-scenes effort it took to make Katniss look and feel like the Mockingjay. I sort of wanted Joanna Mason and Katniss to be, like, doing touch-ups when they're in the arena, you know? I think there are many layers of privilege in this story, and one of them is beauty. There's a weird scene after she wins the first games with PETA when they appear on Caesar Flickerman's show Mm -hmm. and she's wearing this like tutu dress. There's like this weird emphasis on her still fitting the image of this beautiful girl, this darling of the capital, even when she's also this killing machine for the capital. Yeah. Going back to what you said about there being Katniss and there being the Mockingjay, there's sort of a third aspect of this too, which is a slave of the capital. You know, the slave of the capital murdered those people with the tracker jackers. It wasn't Katniss and it wasn't the Mockingjay. It was one of Snow's pawns that had to do that. 
we participate in our own oppression all the time. I think that's why this story is so interesting and why Katniss is interesting. And I really appreciate how Snow uses the threat of violence to inspire more violence. In order to convince Katniss to play this love story with Peeta, he threatens to kill Gale. Yeah. She only fights in the first place because she doesn't want her sister to die. Yeah. There are so many beautifully written scenes in these movies, but one of my favorites is the conversation she has with Peeta right before the first Hunger Games in their fancy hotel room. Oh, yeah. And Peeta actually feels this spark of rebellion even before Katniss does. He says, I don't want them to change me. I don't want to be a piece in their game. I wish I could think of a way to show them that they don't own me. If I'm going to die, I want to still be me. And Katniss says, I just can't afford to think like that. I have my sister. She's admitting that she needs to play this game because she has people to protect. Later on in Catching Fire, Joanna has a scene that like stops my heart when she's yelling at the camera. She's yelling directly to Snow and everyone's sort of looking at her like, what are you crazy? And she says, what? They can't hurt me. There's no one left that I love. Yeah. Oh, good shit. I have also had such a lady boner for Jenna Malone. Oh my God, Jenna Malone is amazing. I just can't even remember a time in my life. Like I can't even, I don't even have memories going back that far of not being madly in love with Jenna Malone. Right. (laughs) But here's why Katniss is so interesting to me. Because I completely agree with everything you just said. But there are very distinct moments in the first half of the first movie that I found so hilarious that Katniss implies she already knows she's going to die. And so she's going to have a little fun on the way out. Like when she shoots the apple in the pig's mouth. Right. She's doing that to say, fuck you. I know I'm going to die. So I'm just going to taunt you a little bit first. That implies the opposite of what you're saying. And I think she has to go back and forth between thinking this system is fucked. I'm going to make fun of it before they brutally murder me and then genuinely resisting. I think what you just said is a fascinating dichotomy within Katniss. Yeah. That she has her left brain that is just interested in the task at hand, that she wants to protect her sister, she wants to protect Peeta, she wants to protect Gale. And then she has her right brain, which is full of that fire. It's the thing that people spot in her that turns her into the Mockingjay. I don't think that she deliberately deliberately shoots the arrow into Mm. the apple in the pig's mouth, I think she can't help herself. Totally. I think that moment goes against her plan to play the game. Absolutely. Totally. I think that Gale actually is an interesting parallel to Katniss in terms of their enthusiasm for the revolution. Mm -hmm. Gale has a really interesting arc, I think. When we first meet him, he's obviously interested in revolution. He's trying to think of ways to fight the power in Mm -hmm. the first film and in the second in a way that feels pretty inconvenient for Katniss. (laughs) You know, she's thinking of her sister and her family and... We watch Gale kind of come into his own as a soldier, as a revolutionary. He was basically responsible for saving the few citizens of District 12 that got out. So that probably allowed him to get promoted in the ranks when he got to District 13. And so he transforms in this kind of tragic way into a military-minded soldier in a way that Katniss really sees as, I think, vulgar when we find out that he created the plan to trap all of the District 2 people in the mines and then like 
kill them, basically. Like, that's the first hint. And then I think it's implied at the end that he sort of inspired Coin's plan to kill the children. And that was when Katniss was, like, pretty happy to say goodbye to him forever. Mm. Which is really sad because I think that, at least in the first two films, it's pretty clear to me that if none of this happened, if Katniss was never in the Hunger Games, she could have had a pretty happy life with Gale. Mm -hmm. And they were very well suited for each other and they loved each other. But people change and life takes you in different directions. And so I think the uh, love triangle... in these films actually serves an interesting purpose in the plot for the different directions that Katniss's life takes because she was involved in all of this trauma. And I really did appreciate that one scene when they're in Tigress's basement, which by the way, Tigress, like, yes girl. <laughs> when Gail and Peta have their like, they're like talking about like, she never kissed me like that. Oh my god. But I realized- Shut up. I realized, There's a war going on. I realized watching that scene that that is the scene that is usually relegated to women in these war stories. We are watching a war story where the central protagonist, the central soldier is a woman and the only scene so far between two men has been them talking about romance with the woman. A, I find that hysterical and satirical and very funny, but B, I believe in equality. I don't think anyone of any gender identity should be relegated to two-dimensional subplots. I think we all deserve better. Whatever. (laughs) I was very aware that Peta was the main, you know, love story of the series. Gail was there to suggest that Katniss had her own sexuality separate from Peta, Mm -hmm. that she was exploring in her own time. This love story that's been forced upon her is inconvenient and interfering in her own life. It's sort of another thing that the capital is taking away from her is her own sexual expression and her own like romantic identity Mm -hmm. and then that it's not necessarily that she falls in love with Peta it's that she and Peta share this traumatic experience in a way that no one else in her life does and she just can't be alone with her PTSD. When we meet her at the very end of Mockingjay Part 2 and she's like alone in her house and she like yells at the cat, Hmm. that's sort of how I imagine Katniss's life would be for the rest of her life if she didn't have someone sweet and nurturing like Peeta there who she could share her trauma with and share her grief with in a safe way. To me, that's why it's so obvious that she ends up with Peta at the end of the story, not because of some big romantic thing, but because after war, after trauma, after something so horrible, you just need other people. Yeah. I mean, I do remember reading the ending for the first time and crying when I think the opening line of that chapter is, um, I didn't want children, but Peta wanted them so bad, or something like that. Right. And being like, oh, fuck, of course she's with Peta, of course. Like, how could I ever have doubted that? Um, I remember being very, very moved by that. I feel like when we look back at all of these movies, you know, we named this episode, Remember Who the real enemy is. Mm -hmm. I think that's such an important line of these movies. Yeah. One of my favorite moments of the entire series is the last scene of the first film, The Hunger Mm -hmm. Games. She's talking to Peta on the train on the way home. And Peta asks her what's going to happen when they get back, when they get back home. And she says, I guess we try to forget because 
that's sort of Katniss's M.O., right? Like, she does what she needs to do to survive both physically and emotionally. Mm. But Peta says, I don't want to forget. And I feel like in the moment, it sort of has a little to do with the romance. Like, he doesn't <laughs> want to forget that they were in love in the arena and that they're really not in real life. But I think the main purpose of that line in the structure of the entire series is to say, we've had this horrific experience and it's our responsibility not to forget. Totally. This is obviously a very different context, but it reminded me, ironically, of another line in another movie that Gary Ross also wrote. I'm madly in love with Pleasantville, and that also is a movie about confronting the truth in a way that is very painful and very against the status quo, which is exactly what The Hunger Games is. The movies actually are sort of in more dialogue than I thought they were. And at one point, this suburban family man turns to his suburban family lady, his housewife, who is rebelling in the way that a lot of members in the town are rebelling. And he says, it goes away, referring to this rebelling. He says, it goes away. It'll go away. And Joan Allen, who's so amazing, she turns and she says, I don't want it to go away. And I was like, wow, that's that's exactly like the Hunger Games. I just feel like after every human tragedy, like one of the most like trending phrases is never forget. Yeah. And then we do. And then we do. <laughs> that's the tragedy. And I think the important thing to remember, the important thing that this movie gets across, especially in the way that the capital doesn't understand the violence until it's done to their own children, mm -hmm. never forgetting means expanding that experience to everyone. When you see something happening to someone else, you have just as much a responsibility to step in for that person as you would for that thing to happen to yourself again. Yeah, you hear cultural groups or religions or nationalities saying, we're going to make sure this never happens again. And what they're really saying is, we're going to make sure it never happens to us again. Right. But if it happens to another tribe, so be it. And that is why we've been in war for thousands and thousands of years. That's a lot to get from a YA book series turned Hollywood movie franchise. Fabulous. This was, in all good ways, but this was a little exhausting. <laughs> I'm about to go home and just go to sleep. <laughs> I want to watch something peppy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening next week, Sam? Our next episode, which will be out on January 22nd, is Body of a Girl. We'll be watching three amazing indie movies that tackle three very different ways that girls relate to their bodies at three different stages of adolescence. Fab. The first film is the 1997 Belgian-French film Ma Vie en Rose, which is a different movie from La Vie en Rose, the biopic about Edith Piaf, <laughs> which is a fabulous movie. You should go watch that at some point. But <laughs> this is Mavion Rose, in which a young trans girl struggles to be accepted by her family and her community. The second is the 2015 film The Fits, in which a girl joins her local dance team where the members are experiencing mysterious seizure-like episodes. Oh my god, I'm so ready for everyone to go watch The Fits. <laughs> yeah, please do. And the third is the 2002 film Real Women Have Curves. Yay! 
in which a teenage girl in the summer between high school and college goes to work at her sister's textile factory. I'm so filled with joy that this is what we're doing right now. We just talked about The Hunger Games. We're getting ready to talk about these three amazing movies. What a life. Oh, yeah. What a life. What a life. Anything else to say for the cameras? <sighs> May the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> yeah, truly. Welcome to 2019, everyone. Oh, yeah! New year! Yeah. New year, new beginnings, very exciting, happy 2019. Remember who the real enemy is. This 2019, remember who the real enemy is. But actually. Brava. Enjoy these movies. Have a great two weeks. We'll see you then. Happy New Year! Bye! Feminist Popcorn is produced and hosted by Samantha Rare and Elizabeth Frankel. Our theme music is by Barrett Riggins. Our cover art is by Hannah Perry. Keep up with us on Instagram and Facebook at Feminist Popcorn. Tweet us at official underscore fempop. And email us your voicemails at feministpopcorn at gmail.com. You can find descriptions and links to all of our movies on feministpopcorn.com. And don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday. Sam, the movie's starting. Pass the popcorn. For all we know, Trump won't be president by the time this episode comes out. (laughs) No, I'm going to jinx it. I take it back. Forget it. I don't want to mess with fate. Whatever. (laughs) Nah.